Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Ron Skelton has been a serial entrepreneur for over 35 years. Ultimately, this has led to partnering with, buying, or investing in privately held businesses. Ron is the podcast host of How to Exit, and I was recently on his fantastic show to talk about mergers and acquisitions in the small and medium-sized business space. I encourage you to check it out. On this episode of Succession Stories, we talked about Ron's experience as an acquisition entrepreneur, what that means, and his approach to preserving the owner's legacy after the sale. You'll hear why he calls himself an m dude with a heart. Enjoy this episode about buy-side deals with acquisition entrepreneur Ron Skelton. Ron Skelton, welcome to Succession Stories. I was so excited to be on your show, How to Exit, and I appreciate coming on your podcast. And I love talking to podcasters. I know you love telling your story. And this is going to be a really interesting one because it's going to continue the series of talking to people in mergers and acquisitions. I not only want to learn about your experience as a serial entrepreneur, but of course we're going to spend time talking about transition, talking about your transition and what you do to see successful exits for entrepreneurs. So I'm excited to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's jump in with your background. I saw in one of your bios out there somewhere that you're an M&A dude with a heart, which made (laughs) me laugh. Does that mean that other M&A dudes don't have a heart? I mean, come on. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot out there that's all about the numbers. You know, my favorite thing to do is like sit down with the business owner, try to figure out where they want to go and see if I can help them get get them there. And if I can and and it works for me and if that's great. And if I can't, I'll introduce them to somebody else. But I did the same thing in the real estate space when I was doing real estate. I honestly think you can be in this space, be honest with people, work with them, help them get where they want to be and not have to be a ruthless business guy or, you know, you don't have to be a, what was that, you know, blue horseshoe, you know, loves anaconda. So you don't have to be the greedy cutthroat M&A guy that, you know, that everybody thinks that's out there. I just don't think you have to be that guy. And you weren't always that guy. You started out in your career where? Where did you get started? <laughs> well, I did some time in the military, got out of the military, did defense contracting and uh, the dot-com world. Always been an entrepreneur, I think, since an early childhood. Unlike a lot of people, you know, like they kind of stumble into business and stuff. I got told I was not old enough to work for my father at a young age. So uh, we lived five miles out in the woods. I grabbed the push mower, pushed it five miles into town and was mowing lawns. 
And when he realized I was willing to that work that hard for a dollar, he let me come and work for his painting business. So, uh, you know, that was kind of my, one of my first ventures into just being an entrepreneur. Like if I need money, I'll go get it. So, so. your dad had a painting business and I think I, I read somewhere you ended up working for him for four years. Is that right? Yeah. From a, I actually ran it for four years when I was, that was, I was probably 12 or 13 when I was safely able to climb a ladder, I was working for him. And then at some point he said, you know what? I need to take some time off. I want to do some other stuff. Why don't you run this? So at 16 years old, he handed it over to me and I ran the three crews we used to paint the houses and, and stuff. Uh, my first day there, I remember going up to some people like they're the crews, about two or three people per, per house, per crew and say, does anybody have a problem working for a 16 year old? Actually, one of my own friends uh, raised his hand and I was like, okay, okay, you're done. And I let him go. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> were you still friends after that? Uh, yeah, we were friends a little bit later. Not that day. No, not that day. <laughs> not <all>. that day. <laughs> right. He's like, I ain't working for you. I, you know, we're friends. And I was like, okay, well, then you're gone. So, uh, no, I, I ran that until I was about 20. I realized that I was making a lot of money, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was getting where I wanted to get. I thought I want, I thought a college degree was the solution to that. I wasn't saving enough money for college. So, uh, I joined the military did military intelligence for the Air Force and uh, got my college degree, my first couple of college degrees there. And you've done some digital marketing work. You've been a marketing executive. You've worked in startups in Silicon Valley. So you've seen what it looks like on the front end of getting a business off the ground. But now you are looking to acquire businesses or invest in businesses that are well-established. I can relate to that. That's a space that I'm familiar with. Let's talk a bit about that. How did you get from, from where we were talking about in your past to this idea that you want to be in M&A and buying companies, well-established companies? You know, it, it started off, I had a couple of partners and I were running a real estate investment group and the market turned on us. We were doing short sales and buying houses out of foreclosure and stuff. And market kind of dried up. The regulatory stuff became really difficult, decided to move on from that. And I, I didn't know if I was burned out or like at the early stages that you can't tell, is, am I burned out and I'm just not performing as well in this business or is the market really gone soft on us? So I brought in a performance coach and one of the things he said was, man, you should be playing a bigger game. And we would close a house where there'd be 30 or $40,000 moving into the business account, not my personal account, but to the business. And I'd have that voice in the back of my head going, but you should be playing a bigger game. So, uh, at this point, I'd already been coaching other entrepreneurial real estate investors and stuff. I encouraged three or four of my friends to move from single family housing to mobile home parks and apartment complexes. And I kept thinking, man, if I move into that space, I just told these guys to move in. I'm a marketing nerd by trade. I'm going to just dominate the space like I did the foreclosure space. And I'm going to be hurting two or three people I really like. So started looking what's next. Like, what, you know, once you do like apartments and mobile home communities, what do those guys graduate to? And I don't know where I seen it or stumbled across. My wife and I were talking about moving and living abroad. And the thing that got my eye on the mergers and acquisitions is in some countries, it's easier to move there and live there for more than 90 days if you actually own a business there. So I started studying that and I started falling in love with the idea of let's just buy a business that's already working and generating revenue. That's kind of what started up. So I hired a mentor, studied some courses, read everything I get my hands on, and I got busy after it. Did you end up buying a business abroad? No, not yet. It's funny thing is uh, we bought quite a few, actually. I did one of the courses there, and in some of these courses you can take, 
the course is brilliant. It teaches you stuff. It gets you your like, kind of your foundation, but kind of like a good school, the real value you're going to get from that is the network you make, the people inside of the program. In one of those programs that are out there, we grouped up uh, about seven or eight of us and started acquiring marketing companies. So we did a what was would refer to as a roll up. We worked on it for a little over a year and had uh, put under contract under LOIs and with closing, doing the closings on uh, just under $100 million worth of marketing agencies. And one of the partners and a couple of advisors offered to buy the rest of us out of the thing and continue on. And they made a good offer on it for where we were. So we did that in December. And in January, I started looking for another project and just got really busy with the podcast and some family life issues. We got family members who had passed away and stuff. So uh, just about to kick off another big project here, probably in May or June. That's exciting. Can we rewind and talk a little bit about this consortium? I know there's a third rail. You and I talked offline. I'll try to stay away from it. So help <laughs> me, help guide me there. But can we talk about some of the dynamics? There were seven or eight of you in that group. That sounds like a big number to me. It is. And it's a uh, don't do it. I'm a big believer that, you know, a company needs one great leader. And then you might have two or three that are strong, have strong leadership. But if you're a company of eight and you have eight alphas, female or male, I, I use that. It's a general neutral term with me. But uh, if you have high performers who expect to be the boss, it ends up being almost like you're managing every decision by committee because everybody has a voice and everybody is strong enough to voice their opinion and stand their ground. And it slowed us down. So that's one thing uh, we we created this. We were hanging out together. We we're in these meetings and networking, and we came up with the idea together. And the way we picked the eight was like, who wants to play a role in this? And everybody that raised our hand, we took. So we didn't really vet their resume or whatever. We just figured we'd find there's, this is going to be a big enough project. We'd find something they're good at to do. And then they'd all taken one of two courses from one of two of the mentors we like. So they're either in our program or a, or a competing one that's really good. So we, we knew they had the skills, like the knowledge, and uh, we needed the manpower. So we took everybody. And I won't do that again. You had the manpower, theoretically. What about the financing? Was that something that you were able to more easily secure because of the resumes and experiences of the group? Yeah, we had a couple of members in the group that had had some recent exits, and they funded a big portion of it. We kept the finance needs down quite a bit. It's a very unique play in the roll-up. We weren't like the P&E model where we're offering cash. We set up an entity and we're offering an exchange. Can't really go into the details of that. It's really proprietary what we set up. And that part of the, like our structure was probably what we spent the first six to eight months with. We, we literally went to attorneys and said, we want to do A, B, C. And they're like, eh, A is a good idea, B and C probably not. And we go, okay, A, D, E. And we just kept working on an, uh, a system that would be a uh, low tax impact in the media. Because of some of these things, when you're doing roll-ups, if they issue stock exchange, you kind of got gifted some stock and have to pay taxes on that. So there was a, you know, all these terms and stuff, waterfall effect and everything that we had going on, options to purchase and the lawyers had it figured out, <laughs> but the first six or eight months was just designing a system what would keep our capital requirements low. We still paid for lawyers, I mean, attorneys and accountants and that type of stuff, but we were doing an equity exchange in the realm that we weren't like issuing multi-million dollar purchases. Okay, gotcha. So it wasn't like you were going out securing commercial loans or anything like that? Who is your most important customer? 
the person who buys your business. Stonyhill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. In terms of finding the right opportunities, you mentioned you were doing a roll-up or you did a roll-up on mm-hmm. marketing services firms. How did you go about the search, you collectively as a group? How did you go about for the search process? And maybe you could share some of the criteria you were looking at at the time. Yeah, I would say 98% of our search was done through LinkedIn. There were two or three of us, I'll kind of give you a scale of this. There were two or three of us that were very actively using our LinkedIn accounts to, to, to meet the CEOs of marketing agencies. And we would meet them under just a, hey, we're like connect to marketing agencies. Here's what we're up to. And we'd hear their story, their origin story and how they created their agency. And then we would show them what we're doing and ask them if they wanted to be involved. And in a ma- the matter of probably just shy of 200 days, you know, depending on who you ask on the start date, when we officially started talking to agencies, might be 200 to 215, somewhere in there, uh, days. We talked to just shy of 200 agencies, about 190 something, right? Wow. And that means one hour conversations. And, you know, the interesting thing was, more of them said, yeah, we're, we're interested, let's do this, than we agreed. Like we were looking for world-class agencies. So the criteria was they, you know, six-figure EBITDA in the upper, closer to the million, the better. We were looking at some that were very unique in what they do. So they were under the million-dollar EBITDA. But then we were looking for their world-class at some aspect of their business, meaning they might be the best SEO on the planet or they might be the best social media or they have the best internal tools. But for every agency we were looking at, we were looking for something that was world-class because we were bolting these around. And we were um, primarily focusing on the US, but we had uh, calls with agencies in the UK, Dubai, Australia. We weren't turning them away for the other countries. Uh, We even had one in, uh, I forgot somewhere now, but just just a little bitty country in the middle of nowhere. It's four four guy company, but they're just brilliant in what they did. And when you got them on a on an initial call, did you ask them what prompted their interest? You know, why were they interested in talking to you? What was the most common answer did you find? You know, it's interesting is marketing agencies are a very unique breed in the fact that uh, the path through their growth almost always has uh, mergers and acquisitions in it. There's a um, there's a like a false ceiling or a glass ceiling in marketing agencies. You you start an agency, you start acquiring customers, you start training your staff. And then as you grow, there's this point where you've got the people trained where they're ready to do maybe a Coca-Cola or a BMW. Like they want a big client because they've got the skill set and they don't have the, the, the agency itself is too small to even bid on those type of projects. So they run into this problem where either they grow by acquiring another agency so they're big enough or they end up getting acquired so that their talent can grow and or they lose, you know, they're constantly losing their top talent to bigger agencies because they, they train these people and have them ready to handle those accounts, but they can't land them. So the agency owners were very open to talking to us about mergers and acquisitions activities. They're, they're just used to it. They're used to it. Yeah. And it wasn't retirement. It was really a growth strategy. You know, they wanted to stay in the business, right? Or they were they intending to transition out? It was a big combination, all of them. Uh, our program was uh, three years. Uh, so 
from start to finish, if you got in on day one, we expect you to be there for three years until we went through the uh, liquidity event. And then we expect you to tell us um, early on in the first few months whether or not you're staying or going so that we can plan that and uh, have your, you know, have a succession plan for who's succeed, you know, who's taking over your role. So uh, we did have a mix of people who are staying and who are going, uh, but it was just in full communication along the way. Um, we have to imagine, you know, the, the trick was, and the interesting thing we were doing was we had an overall arcing brand, and I can't say that on here, but uh, under under the, the agreements we had when we sold, I can't tell you what we created, but uh, we had the overarching brand, but we were allowing every single an, uh, agency, and we really wanted them to keep and maintain the brands that they were operating under. So, you know, we were offering to, uh, they keep their business card on one side, it looks exactly like it always has, and they flip it over and it's the parent agency. So if you were wanting to go bid at your local normal, uh, you know, businesses around there, you just use that brand you've always used. Everybody knows, loves and trust. But if you get told no on a bigger deal, you can say, hey, I'm part of this bigger conglomerate of agencies around the world or, uh, you know, X number, $100 million agency. We have all the resources you'd ever need and they could bid as that. So that was the, uh, the approach we were taking. Gotcha. You and I had a great conversation on your show. And of course, now I flipped the mic on you, but you had <laughs> asked me some questions about business transitions and, and what do I see as I'm out there talking to business owners and I think I'll ask you kind of the same thing, you know, yeah. as you talk to a lot of business owners and you get to know them and what their motivations are in the process. And at the same time, let's be clear, you're also trying to figure out if it's a fit for you. Right. What are some of the first questions you ask? You know, let's, it doesn't have to be meeting number one, but you know, certainly in the first one or two meetings, what are some of those things that you're asking them to get to know whether or not this is a fit for you? I always start with the origin story, kind of tell me how you created this. And then one of my favorite questions is, you know, out of all the people you can be talking to today, why are you on the phone with me? You know, what is it? What, where is What is it that I can do to help you out? There's a reason why they're on the phone talking to somebody who's either seeking to invest in or acquire their business. And uh, I kind of need to get to the origin of that. Uh, so, um, like I said earlier, my, like, I like to be the M&A guy with the heart. My goal is to figure out what they're trying to accomplish and see if I can help them get in there, right? What about transferability? You and I talked about that quite a bit on your show. Yep. And you know, you know I have a lot of thoughts on that. What, what, is your, what do you see literally if a company is more or less transferable? How do you ferret that out? How do you try to understand? And then what type of impact is that having as you think about potential value of that deal? Absolutely. So a lot of cases you're talking to business owners and they're carrying three, four or five hats and they haven't taken the time to felt all of those out. And one of the toughest conversations I have with business owners is like, look, yeah, you're pulling 80, 90 hours a week. I don't do that. And uh, I don't know that I can hire anybody that will because the reason you're doing it is you own it. So when you leave, I don't have to replace the CEO at X number of dollars. I need to replace the CEO at that figure. And then I got to bring in a top sales guy because you're the top sales guy, right? And there's one, it was a machine shop and the guy was the mechanic too. He fixed all the heavy duty machinist work unless, you know, so if one of the big laves or I don't know what else they have out there, I know they have presses and laves, uh, but uh, you know, I don't know the machine shop world that much, but if something broke, he would literally change his hat, you know, put on some, you know, whatever and head out there in the shop and get greasy and fix the, fix the machines. And I'm like, so I got to hire a mechanic, a sales guy and a CEO to run this. And uh, it was more than that, but a lot of business owners don't realize how many hats they're wearing. 
and how hard it is to transfer the, the business when you're wearing that many hats. Yeah, and you might take a look at that machine shop, but you're not going to pay, certainly not going to pay a premium for it. And you might even pay less for that business than someone else might be willing to. This particular one, he would have had to have double the revenue he had now in order for me to afford to bring on the team it took to run that business, right? And um, so he, he would have to almost double in size. He was at a point where I could replace him and maybe the sales guy but uh, it was going to be lean. It was going to eat up every bit of their operating, uh, you know, uh, cash flow to keep those people employed. So, uh, and I don't know anybody that, you know, but you've heard of fractional CEOs and fractional chief marketing officers. I haven't heard of a fractional mechanic, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, so I don't know that you could do that, but it, I, I see, and, it, and it's not just him. It's just, it, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, uh, like, you know, you know, we talked a little bit. I own a pest control company. The first the reason I hired mentors is my first purchase was a mistake. I bought something way too small. And um, uh, but as I talked to the other guys, I, I haven't acquired a second one because I've seen ones with 10, you know, 10 techs out on there, six or eight trucks. And the the owner is still owner operator. And he's wearing two, three, four five hats. Right. And um when you start trying to you know do the the math and move like okay we're gonna have to hire this this and this guy your profit really isn't what you say it is because you're you know you, th that one guy's working 100 hours a week i'm 50 and have two kids i have no interest in working 100 hours a week i did it when i was in my 20s in the tech industry it's hard it was hard, hard in your 20s right I, I have no interest in it now well and when's the last time they took a vacation it's a great question you know when's the last time you took a vacation and by the way did you check email and and do phone calls all day or did you really disconnect and so that's a telling question if if people are anticipating that you know, i absolutely ask that, that yeah. Like that yeah they don't even get why i'm asking a lot of times like hey when's the last time you took a vacation and they tell you and they're like oh cool what did you do where did you go all right was it fun did you get interrupted or anything and i just i mean i'm, I'm i am intriguingly interested in their vacation but the underlying story i'm looking for is yeah i got to go to the bahamas for three weeks and nobody bugged me right you know no i went I, you know most of them like i went up to the lake and i worked you know when the kids were out at the water and stuff i was on my laptop doing stuff i was like that's not the vacation <laughs> so how do you value a deal you mentioned ebitda as a typical factor in some of these smaller businesses are you doing normalized net income and what might move that number up or down? You know, it's it's it's, it's an interesting thing. I talk about this a lot. If you if you look at all the different models, I think the running joke is like MIT has 140 plus valuation models, right? I use a multiple EBITDA, and I, before everybody sends you messages and tells you that's a really bad idea, it's really soft for me. What I, first thing I do on the phone is like, hey, when I'm talking to the business owner. If they bring up numbers right off the bat, I disagree with whatever they say. If they say they want 1.5 million for the business, like awesome, let's see how we can get you there. That's exactly how I answer it because I don't know anything yet. I haven't seen their financials. It's just awesome, let's see how we can get you there. Sometimes getting you there is you need to double your income, your revenue before we can get you there. But um, as I kind of have a rule of thumb and, and, the, and it's kind of like the same thing in the real estate space. If I can make the deal work and it makes sense and I can, you know, the reason I like the 3X model is I know that the money comes back within the first three years. If, you, if I can see a path of profitability and it's really going to work in, in a three to five year frame, I'll pretty much work with any of the business owners. And, um, you know, I do that multiple of EBITDA plus hard assets because I like real estate. So if they own their building and stuff, I want to acquire it too, you know, or I want to use that as part of the deal. And what so. might be some of those reasons that you'd move it up or down? We talked about transferability. We talked about the role of the owner. 
What are some other things you mentioned niche businesses like the marketing companies that you referred to? What might be some other factors that could move that number up or down? I love recurring uh, revenue model. I think it may be because I have a real estate background. So, you know, if you've got a high base and, and really solid contracts that have paid you month in and month out, you do repeat work, that's one. Or if you have a recurring model, like a subscription model of some sort where they're expected to pay you every month, those those get higher multiple. And I, and I don't know of any mergers and acquisitions guys that don't pay a higher multiple for that. Um, other things for me is how well is it managed? You know, how many hours a week is it going to take? Um, you know, I, I do everything pretty much from zoom or stuff. I've got interest in businesses here in town that I haven't been to in two years, right. And they're five miles away. They, we do everything on zoom, everything's, you know, cause I travel a bit and I don't want them to expect me to come running over to the shop every time, you know, something happens. Right. So, uh, I've never even, so the pest control, I've never even seen the storage facility where, uh, out the shop where all the, uh, the, where the truck and the equipment, equipment set. Uh, just, I have an office over here where I keep the paperwork and I go to my office and, you know, they sent me photos. I know it looks okay, but it's 10 miles from here. And I just never went over there. What are red flags that would make you walk or run away from a deal? I think the owner, the most, uh, be to me, an owner has to be easy to work with. I, I have kind of a, a no jerks policy. I use a different word on my own show, but I'll be nice <laughs> on yours. I have a no jerks policy. Um, so if you're not easy to work with, you know, I know that once I buy this, um, especially if I'm buying something I haven't run, I probably need to call you occasionally and say, Hey, this just happened. Or, you know, it would be easier if I could. And I don't want to, I don't want to buy anything from somebody who's just constantly going to be hard to deal with, um, or unpleasant to deal with. I'm just not interested. Life's too short for that. The other one is, is I get it. I don't, I used to have the expectations that you have cleaned up your books and stuff, but I've had a couple of people on my show recently who has shown me the, the fallacy in my ways there. These business owners, a lot of them are what he referred to as accidental business owners. And I've adopted that phrase. They had a good product. People bought it. They grew a business around it, but they were never taught accounting and all that other stuff. They did what they needed to do to do their taxes and keep themselves out of trouble. But for me to come in, even if they're at the you know million dollar and above mark, for me to come into a you know company that's got ten or less employees or fifteen or less employees and expect you to have perfect books, is kind of a, a false narrative. It's just not going to be there unless somebody's been grooming them for sale. And a lot of times that grooming can not be accurate either, right? They're they're trying too hard to put their best foot forward. So I changed that. Um, I want clean books. I want to be able to understand it. I want to be able to see your tax, you know, your three year, three years of your tax returns, three years of, uh, you know, your bank statements and know where the money's going. Um, I'm currently redesigning part of my little team here so that if, if you got your tax returns and your uh, bank statements, I can construct what the profit and loss should look like and the balance sheet should look like. And uh, if you have them or not, I'm okay with that. Um, I know people, I've met people in the last year that are running business doing 2 million a year and don't, you know, 2 million a year. They've never created a profit and loss statement for anybody. They don't even know what a PL looks like. Right. And uh, they just got good at building what they're building, put their head down, start building them, selling them. And next thing you know, they're making more money, you know, than they, they thought they would with it. And it's getting close to time to do something else. Yeah. So, so any particular deal terms you usually work within so earnouts or you know any long-term agreements anything of note that you found are more or less acceptable to business owners and what they're looking for 
I told you I'm interested in ones that are not perfect yet. You know, one of the biggest pushbacks I've ever seen was I put a clause inside of mine on the LOI that says um, I have 45 days uh, during the uh, after the due diligence process that if skeletons pop up or whatever, I can unwind it. I can basically uh, hand you your business back and uh, and expect you know what what monies I put forward back up. Yeah, just for the ones that are really like left some questionable stuff there. Like you just don't know how they got where they are. And uh, I got a lot of pushback from that. Like a lot of people are like, I don't want you handing this back to me. I'm done. Right. They're like, don't give it back to me. And I was a little shocked. I actually had an offer that went out. Um, it seemed like a, I had a $1 offer on a $13 million company. I offered them a dollar down and I'm going to take over four and a half million dollars of their debt. And uh, just because their books were so thrashed and I thought it was going to get thrown in my face. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the Marine Corps friend of mine, uh, you know, Prior Marine, just tough as nails. Actually, that performance coach that told me I should be playing a bigger job. I mean, playing a bigger game. I brought him in on a deal and like because uh, he's really good with keeping people's heads straight. Um, right when I, about, I slid that offer across the table, he puts on his mask, jumps up and heads to the bathroom like kind of green. And uh, he thought he was he thought they were going to wad it up and throw it in my face. Right. Dollar down. Thirteen million dollar a year run rate uh, revenue on a concrete company. And um I offered them a dollar down, take over their debt because their books were just thrashed and uh, we couldn't put them back together and they weren't giving us everything. So um, I was like, okay, we'll take this on. Uh, but we put a 90 day uh, uh, unwind clause in there. And she was really concerned that I was going to get in there, start cleaning up things and hand it back to her. Yep. Didn't want that. So did they successfully take it out of the agreement or did you insist on it staying in? No, they, I insisted upon a state in. They actually said they gave us a verbal okay. And then uh, because of some of that debt was um, that I said it was four, four and a half million dollars of debt. One of them was um, a federal institution <laughs> and the other one was their bank. So they owed the bank over a million dollars and they owned, uh, owed another company. Um, I mean, another, the federal institution, uh, I gotta be careful because you can deduct okay. it's, this is Oklahoma, right? The people <laughs> listening can kind of probably figure out who, who this is, but they owed the, uh, one of the federal government, uh, entities, uh, nearly a million dollars. And okay. when they told them that we were going to take over the debt, both the bank and that, uh, particular, uh, three lettered agency said, yeah, no. So they had to fix their financials. So the deal didn't go through, not because they didn't say no. I mean, they didn't say yes. The deal got stopped because both uh, the bank and the uh, the bank was a little more interested in it than the other entity. But they were like, yeah, we're not going to let anybody, you're not letting you off the hook for liability of this. You, you created this mess. Right. And, uh, I'll be honest, we had already hired an attorney. We'd already uh, uh, retained an attorney to negotiate that one way down because they'd never had it reviewed. They never had their, their financials audited and they've never challenged that that amount that was owed. And uh, I know an attorney here in town that that's what they do. So, okay. That's a good thing for, I think, listeners to hear is there may be third parties who have input on a deal that you need to consider. Other examples that pop up are landlords, for example, or if you're a franchise, the franchisor. So what you just shared is a really good example. Ultimately, I, you know, what I do sometimes and when I start working with a client is, Let's take a look at your all of your assets and maybe they're tangible or intangible. What are those things and are they transferable? So if you have a lot of contracts and that's what makes your business valuable, why someone's interested in it, how transferable are they? And that will also impact the type of transaction. Is it going to be an asset sale or an entity sale? 
And in that situation you were just talking about, you were going to assume the debt. So that was going to be an entity sale, correct? Right. So we were going to take over the entity and the debt on that. We kind of, it was a hybrid. We were going to do an asset transfer. They had quite a bit of equipment. So we were going to do an asset transfer for a lot of them. They had 50 something vehicles, uh, 26 acre facility. Uh, it was, it was a, they had semis, they had a transportation unit, had an eight or 10 semi to move concrete items around. And uh, so we were going to do an asset transfer and then do what you said, the entity transfer just for the, that the one thing, the reason we were going to do that is there's some reason, there's some justification for splitting up that company. Um, day one, we were going to split it into a welding shop because they had a, a full staff 24 seven that made all the hinges, doors and everything. And they had uh, the opportunity to make some stuff for other people. Uh, and then they had the concrete and then they had a transportation uh, company with multiple semis and stuff. And the transportation company had had some issues. They had, had auto accidents. So the liability of that to, to separate it off into its own entity was kind of where we were headed. Gotcha. And there's also different tax treatment in those two different types of transactions. Okay. Right. That makes sense. So as we start to wind down here, I want to ask you, what's one thing that you would advise people thinking about selling their company one day? What's the one thing they should be thinking about? I think the one thing you want to think about is, it's not an overnight process. You decide to sell your business today. We're going to look at your last your track record. What I call your last three years of track ta, uh, track record. So, uh, tax returns, financials, bank statements for the business. You know, something to give us kind of a longer term view, at least three years view of where you've been and where you're going. Um, so you you can't just start packaging up today and decide, decide to sell unless you've been running well for the last couple of years. The other thing is. Um, I learned uh, this last year, I always thought people sold to the highest and best offer, right? I would say more than probably 80% of these deals don't go that route. They're looking for the safest pair of hands. So um, understand what you want in your buyer. If you think it's money, I think when you get down, down to it towards the end, you'll figure out that it's not as much the money. The money will probably be close between the top two or three uh, potential buyers, but more there are things out there that you're going to want more than money. Like are your employees say? Yeah, that's, that's a great takeaway. A lot of times we do think it's a myth that it is going to go to the top buyer with the highest price. I, I do hear that often also that it, it's more about fit or there's other reasons what makes that deal interesting to the seller. And it's a good message to share. So I appreciate you sharing that. If people want to get in touch with you and, Maybe also, you know, of course, happy to help with anyone wanted to talk about it with me as well. But if they want to reach out to you directly, Ron, and they have a business to sell, what's some of the criteria you're looking for to know whether or not it's a fit at the get-go? Okay. So uh, I want you to be really well run. So usually that means you've got 10 or more employees. Um, if you deploy something, if, if you employ something like EOS and you're really good at it, I'll look at a smaller one. Um, revenue is a million dollars a year or more. Um, and um, either you have a general manager in mind or somebody that can take over the day-to-day -day operations, or you've got it set up to where it's documented what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I'm not an owner operator. When I buy it, I'm kind of more going to be on the, the chairman of your board. Uh, I'm going to pick somebody externally or internally to be your general manager. Uh, there, those guys will report to me on a weekly basis. Uh, and then after we build trust, probably bi-weekly or monthly. And then we do big quarterly planning sessions. So uh, 
the cleaner you have it and the more ability that it has to run with the team that's there. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Gotcha. Gotcha. And any different industry, any geography? I love home service businesses and I'll probably do them just about anywhere. So that includes everything from fairly large cleaning services. I own a little pest control, uh, probably not pest control in other States because of the regulatory, but, um, you know, if you can think of, uh, fence companies, uh, pretty much anything that has to do with the, um, home services I'd be interested in, especially when I can cross sell and upsell them. So, um, a fence company and a pool cleaning company would be a great fit. If I can find them both in the same market, every time the pool cleaner goes, he sees that fence. Every city has a uh, uh, requirements for safety standards and zoning requirements on this, the fence that goes around swimming pools. So there's an easy cross sell and upsell there. Uh, same thing with like yard and um, you know, yard maintenance, landscaping, that type of stuff. Those three would go together. So I'm interested in that. Uh, I have I have some guys who are working together in the auto space, so auto repair, towing, uh, just like boring brick and mortar type companies uh, that uh, <laughs> they've been around, keep jobs in your local market, you know those types of things. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm not interested in, like restaurants. Uh, a lot of work and a lot of passion has to go into owning a restaurant. If you're you know if you're not passionate about that that restaurant, it's going to be a tough one to run. They're, they historically have a low profit margin. Uh, anything highly regulated, not interested in. So, so gotcha. veterinarian services, you know, that type of stuff where you have to set up specialty entities to own them. I, I, I'm not interested. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I ask all my guests if they have a favorite saying or quote about entrepreneurship or leadership. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I'm going to butcher it. I know I am. It's Zig Ziglar, right? Uh, if you, you can have anything in the world you want if you help others get what they want, right? It's that the gist of it. But uh, I, I truly operate with a, you know, what I refer to as a heart of service. Uh, I, I answer my phone on a regular basis. How may I be of service? You know, even after I get off this podcast, like the question I ask myself, did I really provide value to them? Uh, I do that. Uh, I, after every podcast I have on my show, i like, how can I? How can I further their game? How can I be of service? So uh, that getting people what they want, I, I truly believe Zig Ziglar nailed it. And I don't know if he got that quote from somebody else or where he pulled it from or how he came up with the idea, but to help other people get where they want to go will get you anywhere you want to be. I'm a big fan of that. So um, I'm a big fan too. That's awesome. How can people connect with you? What's a good way to find you? I think the easiest way is LinkedIn. If you go to LinkedIn, if it's, it's LinkedIn dot, com slash n slash ron skelton r-o-n-s-k-e-l-t-o-n but if you look up ronald skelton i'm probably the only you know bald-headed guy with a long goatee that's doing m a on there so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good I'm at google you bet you are <laughs> i'm pretty uh, I, I have a, a distinct enough look you know so when I first did the M&A, I actually, I, my beard was a little longer. And one of the guys in that marketing roll up uh, said, you know, you kind of look like a biker. You look like the guy shows rolls up on a Harley. And so I shaved it way down nice and neat and clean. And I realized it didn't make any difference whatsoever. So uh, this is about as long as I'll let it get. But uh, it was longer. <laughs> well, just one question for fun. What's one thing that I would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, let's see. It's been a while. I taught martial arts for 18 years. So I was hand-to-hand combat. And uh, 
I used to think it was fun to go work in nightclubs to see if it worked. So uh, I've worked at some uh, rugby bars in their worst places, uh, been stabbed twice, been had guns in my face. Uh, but uh, and uh, the goal was is never have to put my hands on anybody or never have to, to, to swing at anybody, I should say. So uh, but um, got old, got lazy, I guess, blew my knees out and uh, gained a bunch of weight. But that and uh, I was an adrenaline junkie as a youth. Right. So uh, what yeah. kind of adrenaline? Uh, motorcycle racing, uh, motocross, uh, skydiving, bungee jumping, you name it, I've done it. Uh, wow. free, free diving. I lived in Hawaii for three years. I uh, went free diving in the middle of the night with uh, tiger sharks swimming around. And and uh, so, yeah, you are an adventurer. Yeah, I uh, got old. <laughs> I turned 50. <laughs> I, I joke around. I've had six knee surgeries and I gained a bunch of weight. I tell people I'm twice the man I used to be. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Ron, you are great to talk to. It was a pleasure to be on your show. And again, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories and sharing your words of wisdom, your experience with us. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate being here. And if anybody ever needs anything, I, I'll finish this off. It's like, how can I be of service? Oh, that's great. So to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, you can catch Succession Stories on any of your favorite podcast players or on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. And if you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for a future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.